Chris, we've got a market that is ready to sell bonds even after a bit of a miss on the top line. And we've got a market here for stocks that just really refuses to drop this week. So what are we learning right now in the state of the connection between the economy and the stock market? It's a great question, Oliver. Obviously, there's a disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street right now. Uh, looking at the, the job report, if I had to find a silver lining, it'd be that we're still adding positive, we're still adding jobs. If you look back to October, that's probably the only silver lining. You look at the, the headline and we miss estimates by nearly half. Uh, and for the first time since April, households lost 74,000 jobs, but you look at futures and they hardly nudged. So again, I think that highlights that disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. And I think there's some important takeaways from this job report. Um, and I think when you look at this report, while still positive, and that, that 74,000 household miss, that only represents half of November. So this is a very lagged report. And in light of the spiking COVID cases that we've seen over the last four weeks, in addition to the mandates and shutdowns that have occurred subsequently, this is very, I think, outdated data. Uh, and I think actually is a little more optimistic uh, than, in, than the true data shows. But I think there's also some bigger implications here as we look at what this means for the, the Fed meeting on December 16th. Uh, given the disappointment here and uh, with the more data uh, expected with unemployment claims over the next two weeks, uh, odds are they could be a little more accommodative here, hmm. which obviously the market would like. But I think it also uh, perhaps is a wake-up call to Congress that a fiscal package is probably needed here. Uh, that you look at the pandemic aids that are set to expire, uh, the unemployment aids, I should say, the, that are set to expire December 28th, you have a lot of unemployed individuals that are dwindling their savings down pretty quickly and additional stimulus would definitely help. So again, there's definitely this disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. Chris, in terms of uh, stimulus as a catalyst for the market and uh, a reason to figure out uh, you know, what to own or how much and, and where, right now the discussion is about a trillion dollars less. It seems like uh, we can kind of put the cap at a trillion dollars for this interim bill that's been discussed. At least I'm just going from what I've read this week from folks who report on this. Uh, what do you think that would mean for investors in the stock market? Is a trillion dollar stimulus, does it change the game? Does it bring back the kind of froth of the last uh, you know, summer, fall period where we had all these momentum stocks melting up? and Or is this more about playing airlines and companies that are going to be very directly on the other end of such stimulus, restaurants? Yeah, that's a great question, Oliver. And of course, the, the market's a leading indicator and tends to lag, right? But I think with the, the stimulus being only half of what, what really uh, Democrats were pushing for, really actually only about a third <laughs> in reality, but uh, I, I think there is still positive to be gleaned here. As I mentioned, the, the expiring uh, unemployment benefits on December 28th would provide some support there. Additional state funding would definitely be uh, a welcome 
uh, addition right now. But I think also just looking at the amount of both monetary and fiscal stimulus that's been pumped into this market is a, is a positive. You look at M2 money growth, or that's money supply growth, uh, that we've seen year over year just through November, that's positive 25%. And the S&P 500 has a strong correlation with money growth. So I think that's a positive as we go into 2021. You know, I, I obviously, you know, we've, we've seen this melt up. We've seen breadth uh, in the market expand. And those companies that you mentioned that were more punished, uh, like the hospitality industries, the airline industries, uh, catch a bid. And odds are they'll probably still catch a bit on, on the heels of any sort of fiscal package. I, I'm more of a long-term investor and feel that you know, investors should be maybe uh, apprehensive uh, when to just jump blindly into the airline stocks like United Airlines or Delta. Uh, they become zombie companies. In other words, they're paying more in interest than they're bringing in in earnings before interest and tax. Mm. And you know, they're expected to bring in, you know, 20 through 2021, analysts are expecting they'll bring in 50% less revenue than they did in 2019. And that's if they get back to 70% capacity. But I think the bigger question, if you look at those cyclical sectors, especially airlines, is how are they going to be permanently impaired going forward? Uh, when you look pre-COVID, about two-thirds of airline travel was made up from business travel. Now, in light of the pandemic, you, you have to think that businesses learn they can be highly effective, efficient, and save a lot from restricting air travel through virtual meetings. And so you have to wonder if the airline industry will ever be the same or if it's going to be permanently impaired. And so that's where I would caution long-term investing in these type of companies until they can uh, prove and that they can start to pay down some of this debt. Mm. So the worry so, here that uh, buying up companies that are on the brink right now is going to be committed to a pretty tough road in terms of working through some of that debt, working through the loans and assistance they've taken on. Chris, I look at the way you're picking stocks right now. It seems like you're not thinking necessarily in terms of reopening, quarantine, or virus, really. You're just kind of looking at, it seems, a kind of core uh, view of healthy companies, strong mm -hmm. companies. Uh, walk me through some of the picks. I see Berkshire Hathaway in here. I see uh, on the industrial side, Cummins. I see Berkshire uh, and MetLife both in the financial group. But then you also have some more growth-oriented stuff for solar, Salesforce. Um, walk me through kind of how you want to balance between some of the high-growth stuff and some of those that folks might deem as more value. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And to your point, I'm definitely more quality. Right? I want to see low leverage. I feel that uh, leverage is your enemy, and, and I think that the the COVID and the COVID pandemic uh, highlighted or magnified strengths and weaknesses, right? And uh, identified those companies that high leverage will struggle. And so I think taking a long-term perspective, focusing on quality is imperative. Companies like Berkshire Hathaway, as you mentioned, had at the end of the third quarter, $146 billion in cash on the balance sheet, which gives them a ton of opportunity to be flexible when it comes to acquisitions for CapEx or, or capital expenditures and grow. Uh, and, and I think that positions them very well going forward into the next year. Now, with MetLife, 
they definitely have some obstacles with low interest rates and some catastrophe payouts. But again, a ton of cash on hand, strong free cash flow. And uh, when you factor in, they have a $6 billion real estate capital expenditure that they could easily monetize if they needed to. They're very well positioned to move forward. Chris, now, I just wanted to jump in real quickly on the, on the financial side, because I think it's pretty interesting right now. It seems like uh, within those financials, you're also not uh, looking to be tied to you know, the yield curve. You're not looking to be tied to like a regional bank, though. Correct. You know, I think, you know, when you look at the interest rate environment, uh, it's important to look at the percentage of a balance sheet or the income statement that is made up from net interest income. And not to say that all banks are heavily reliant on it, but a lot of them are. So I prefer more diversified financials. You look at Berkshire uh, and it's essentially, in my opinion, uh, almost an instant uh, mutual fund, if you will, uh, with exposures within insurance, financial, other financials, and other industries. And so I think that diversification outside of necessarily net interest income is imperative. So if you're looking at other financials, perhaps those that have heavy trading, like Goldman Sachs, to help offset that, that net interest income uh, hurdle or constraint that they're going to be faced with is going to be important when evaluating financials. Chris, uh, one other thing I just got to make sure I ask you before you go with Salesforce on the list here, uh, the yep. share has been punished for the uh, Slack deal. Unfair uh, or are they buying off more than they can chew? Well, you know, I, I, at first glance, analysts definitely think they overpaid for it. I mean, they're they're buying Slack at approximately 30 times annual recurring revenue. But when you look at the SaaS market, is that really overpaying? I mean, you look at companies like Snowflake and what they're trading relative to their annual recurring revenue, and perhaps they're not overpaying. I think more importantly, this could be a buying opportunity for Salesforce. You look at their competitive advantage or their, their go-to-market strategy, and they're arguably the best CRM, pun intended, uh, you know, out in the market. And I think adding a deliverable like Slack only enhances their capabilities and allows them to, the companies that use Salesforce to interact instantaneously, not only internally with each other, but externally with clients. And I think, you know, uh, where Slack has struggled in, you know, their deliverable, Salesforce will be able to execute much better than Slack has. So I, I actually see this long-term as a great opportunity. Short-term, mm -hmm. there's definitely, I think, gonna be some, some obstacles and some, uh, some constraints.